so much of the stuff that I teach is how can we as human beings do a better job at interacting with each other? And how can we as human beings do a better job at allowing ourselves to step forward into who we are and who we might become? I've been mulling that over and there are things we do, my wife and I, in part because it's just sort of the choices we've made that, you know, we can kind of put up on the little trophy list of good environmental action. So like, we, you know, we live downtown Toronto and we don't have children, so we've never had to have a car. We don't eat a whole lot of meat, although we do occasionally. We do the recycling and all that sort of good stuff. I do fly a lot, so that's against it. And we support things like the Nature Conservancy Group that buy up land to preserve them. But, you know, what was interesting was when, when you posed that question, even in absentia, I was like, what's, I wonder what the drivers for me are around trying to do that. And I think part of it is a sense of commitment to the commons. You know, they talk about the tragedy of the commons, the commons being the shared land. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I really enjoyed interviewing Michael for this podcast. First of all, as a coach myself, his book, The Coaching Habit, has nearly 1,000 reviews on Amazon, basically five stars. It's the standard in the field. He's also a Rhodes Scholar, but very approachable, very fun to talk to. He's a senior partner at Box of Crayons, which teaches people how to manage better, how to lead and coach. You'll hear that we ended up interviewing each other, putting the other one first, learning about how the other one operates. And so we talked a lot about how to lead and motivate without using authority based on people's existing motivations. So when he talks to me, you'll hear some behind the scenes of how I get people to share what they care about and connect that to their personal challenge on this podcast. So you see that behind the scenes part. There's also a lot of systems thinking, which I think is essential for thinking about and working with the environment. So there's a lot to listen to here. I think you'll like it a lot. So let's take it away. Hey, how are you doing? Joshua, I'm good. How are you doing? Very good. Excellent. It's been a little while. I was trying to remember, when did we last speak? Was it a month or two ago? I think it might have been longer than that, actually. Yeah, maybe two or three months. So I hope you're doing well. I am. I'm doing well. As if without me, it can't be going well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thanks for asking. No, things are good. I'm just, uh, I'm right in the middle of a road trip. So I've just been away for 10 days. I've got two days back here and then I'm off for another 15 days. So some flurry of kind of unpacking and repacking going on. I hope that's exciting and not too much of a burden as travel can be so often. It's almost entirely exciting and it is yet still a bit of a burden, you know, like sleeping in unfamiliar beds and being on planes and all that sort of stuff. The the thrill of that is somewhat gone, yeah. but I'm going to some interesting places, so I'm I'm up for it. Cool. Do when you travel, so you say interesting places. I thought you were going to say to some interesting groups to talk to and I hope that you get the chance because I imagine you do a lot of 
hotel, conference room, restaurant. Do you get stuck in that too? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. That's part of the deal. But you, then you hope that the group is, you know, the right group for you. <laughs> they like what you've got to say. They respond to it in the right way. Yeah. Part of the glamour of, of being a, a writer, speaker, public person. Yeah. Yeah. Glamour may be overstating it a bit, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Actually, I just got off the phone with a professor at USC who is using my book as the book for his class. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like uh, a very, very pleasant surprise. And so it's kind of neat to, he was asking me these questions that were like, how does this work? How does that work? And I was like, oh yeah, that was a real problem. And I had to work through how to make that work. And here's what I do. It's like, oh, I'm going to do that. Nice. Really very, what's the word? It's not, it's flattering. Yes. It's, um, what's the word? It feels good. You know, it's definitely a good feeling. Yeah. It's that feeling that your work's making a difference in the world. Yeah. Whatever the snappy phrase for that is, it's that. Yeah. All those hours with my butt and shoulders hurting from sitting at the keyboard and being like, oh, what am, what am I trying to say here? Yeah, exactly. So I had a couple of questions that I wanted to start off with, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. First, is it safe to say that you were in the business of motivating people, figuring out how to help other people motivate others as well? Well, the business of Box of Crayons is is narrowly defined. So we we say we teach 10-minute coaching so busy managers can build better teams and get better results. So we've we've chosen the the how to be a very specific tool. But the point of the how, you know, the why, if you want to kind of connect to the Simon Sinek way of thinking about things, is to allow people to be more human in the work that they do, both the managers and leaders who are trying to lead teams and also the people who are being led. You know, a previous book of mine, I talk about how do you do less good work and more great work. And so if good work is your job description, great work is the work that has more impact. In other words, it makes more of a difference, but it's also the work that has more meaning. In other words, it speaks to who you are and who you want to be. So I reckon striving to alter the balance so you've got the perfect blend of good work and great work in your life makes for better humans, which probably makes for better planets and communities and stuff like that. And I think coaching is one of the, is really the tool that we've gone. Yeah. Let's double down on that as a way of getting there. You're mostly talking in the context of work. Yeah. How much of what you do is, I, I guess the companies probably hire you. I would guess that this stuff, how much of it applies outside of the professional sphere? Well, honestly, if you interact with other human beings, a bunch of the stuff that we teach and talk about is helpful. So if you happen to be a, a monk, a solo, soloist monk dwelling in a cave, then I've got nothing to offer you. But, you know, so much of the stuff that I teach is just how can we as human beings do a better job at interacting with each other? And how can we as human beings do a better job at allowing ourselves to step forward into who we are and who we might become? Certainly for us, it's, you know, just for a sales or a marketing point, you've got to say, here's who I try and serve. But what's lovely for me is that the books that I've written have tended to be kind of cross-disciplinary, if you like. So they, they do. I mean, I was just yesterday at an education conference. So everybody in the room were teachers and kind of principals and assistant principals. And they were a fantastic group to work with. And I'm thrilled. But you wouldn't call that the classic corporate group by any means. Yeah. And I wouldn't. And I'm glad to hear that you're talking about not just it's funny, like I asked, do you do it in a corporate environment? You gave an example that's not really a corporate environment, but also what you talked about doesn't sound exactly like how people, it sounds like, I guess how enlightened people more forward thinking are talking about how work can be, talking about how people can become more, I want to use your words, but I, I didn't 
write them down, but it's like yeah. to be more themselves, to be more a better a version of themselves. Right. I mean, when we teach that kind of difference between bad work, good work, and great work, we say, look, these definitions, even if it's take good work, we say the definition of good work in the fastest way is it's your job description. But whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad or a solopreneur or work for a huge company or something else, you kind of have a, a job description. You know, this is what I'm expected to do day to day to day. And when I get it done, I have the immediate crises. And so the tools we teach, which are like, what do I care about? What makes a difference? Where do I want to focus? How do I be courageous enough to actually start the stuff that scares me, but I think really matters? How am I resilient enough to keep pursuing it when things get difficult or confusing? All of that is, you know, separate from context. You can apply that anywhere. I'm glad you're saying this because the reason I'm getting at outside the work environment and outside of the traditional places of where people think of one person coaching or influencing another is in the area of the environment. Right. What's been motivating me is that there's a lot of people who are, I think that they think that they're leading when they're doing things like telling other people what to do or trying to pass laws where, you know, the United States is not exactly backing. I mean, people say a lot about polluting less and emitting less, but they're not actually doing very much of it. And right. if they vote by how they what they do, there's not a lot of backing for a lot of the stuff that people are trying to. It's a lot of like you change, but not me. Yeah. And the NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. And it's true. You know, the, it's always curious for me that you know, in our schools, particularly our primary schools, at least in the places I've lived, you get this sense of kids being fired up about the world they live in. You know, there's the, they go collect up, pick up litter. They kind of draw pictures of the earth. There's that sense of we've got to look after Mother Earth. But it's tough when you get into being an adult and you feel like a very small piece in a large system. And part of what that large system is called capitalism. And so that kind of economic imperative keeps driving us forward. And it's much harder to stay committed to that sense of environmental commitment. Ironically, the people who call themselves leaders find themselves shying away from leading because if you're going to do what goes against what the system is, I mean, it can be crazy, but sometimes it's also your leader. And if people aren't doing something yet and you're going to be the first one to do it, that's leading. And, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into the definitions of leadership. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, think about what Al Gore did with his documentary. And then he did, I think, what is it, last year or in the last six months or so, he's done a follow up from that. Yeah. And that caused such a big splash when it happened, kind of literally, I guess, and metaphorically with that kind of polar bear swimming in the ocean. And, uh, and yet now that whole sense of an inconvenient truth has lost its urgency and failed or take a Naomi Klein who's you know written about similar stuff and how her message you know those that want to hear it hear it loud and clear but those that don't want to hear it just manage to shut that out I mean I mean you thought about this longer than me Joshua what why you look at and think of an Al Gore because you know he was he's a high profile leader what do you think stopped him having the the impact we were kind of hoping that he might have because my perception is that it slipped away a little bit. I don't know if that's the same for you. Yeah, I'll answer that. Although I have to say that's like the flip version of the exact question I was going to ask you. I was going to say what works. And well, I kind of want to ask you, you wrote a book on malaria right. that I think is, there's got to be a lot of overlap. And I suspect that you took a lot of what works in coaching and leadership and apply that to an area where people weren't really doing it. And I mean, that's what I did. And so, you know, okay, to, to answer your question about Al Gore, there are a few things that, that 
I think got in his way. One is that whether he likes it or not, he's, a lot of people view him as a political figure. And so he's going to get all this stuff, all this baggage caught up with it. And so some people are simply going to disagree with him because it's a different party. Some people are going to disagree with him because of they see where it's going to go and their, their, their profitability is going to drop a lot. And whether he's right or not, right. You know, that's going to be an issue. Those things are, I think are tragic and might be difficult for him to get away from just, you know, he was in the White House for eight years. What was it? Eight years? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And anyway, he's in the White House for a long time. Yeah, eight years. And um, then there's some other things that are different also. He takes a fair amount of heat for still producing a lot of greenhouse emissions. And that's going to – Right. Here's a big house. If you're going to fly around all over the world, that's going to happen. Now, a lot of people who support him will say that's part of the job and there's no other way to do it. And so, yes, you don't want to fly that much, but this job requires it. But that opens everyone else in the world can say, well, I also agree that I shouldn't, but this particular thing that I'm doing does require it. I mean, when my dad goes to visit my sister, I say, you know, it's a lot of pollution. He's like, yeah, well, it's my daughter and that's the way it's going to be. Right. And I remember reading someone else, someone writing like, look, I eat meat. That's the way it is. I like steak. If the planet has to suffer for it, that's the way it's going to be. So getting around that is going to be really difficult. And I think. He took a very fact-based approach and he made an emotional appeal, but I think that spreading facts and science, while essential, does not motivate people's behavior. The example I always give is like, we have more knowledge about nutrition and diabetes and diseases of excess than ever. Yeah. And people with the knowledge. And we're all fat. Are, yeah, it doesn't make Ben and Jerry's any less delicious. And, you know, you want the Ben and Jerry's and so you back rationalize why it's okay. And now you got this reason that it's actually okay to eat Ben and Jerry's. You know, I'm not saying everyone works this way, but I've certainly watched my mind do this. You know, it's like, I say, I'm going to go exercise tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, I'm like, oh, you know what? I have this thing and it's actually okay for that. I don't exercise today. And the next day I'm like, what was I thinking? But the logic makes sense. And, And then if someone pushes against it and then you push back, it tends to reinforce the counter- what, it reinforces a belief that's actually not what you believe right. or not what you want to. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff that says being argued with tends to reinforce your position rather than shift your position. Yeah. So it's a conundrum. I mean, this is a hard topic to take on, which is like, okay, so fact-based stuff, that doesn't always work because people go, it's fake news or I don't agree or I found one scientist on a 100 that thinks – global warming is not true, so I'm just going to quote them. Arguing from a fact-based position often just entrances people's uh, positions. Because you know, if they've decided the planet is flat or fine or whatever, it's very hard to get them to shift from that. Yeah. And when I first started doing this, that is taking on a leadership in the environment role, you know, it was like the way I was describing it, it's like walking through a minefield of people's emotions. Not only do they entrenched in their positions, but their pushback becomes intensely emotional. If you want to get someone really angry, talk to them about not flying right? and how flying pollutes. And they'll start giving you all the stuff about how the plane was going to fly anyway. And there's going to be solar planes one day and all the stuff that I've just come to say is just fatuous and specious. But when they want to fly, it holds weight in your mind. And then if you push on it, they get really angry. Now, I don't push on it because I don't need my goal is not to get people angry at me. That's not productive. 
But I had to go through this minefield and like try this, try that before to try different things at work. So that's where the podcast came to be is I realized working with groups, I hadn't yet gotten enough experience to handle the different perspectives of, of a diverse set of people. You can't just look at someone right. and understand what their perspective is on it. And working one-on-one -on -one with people, I started seeing that people, when they would change their behavior, yeah, they make a little difference of maybe they're picking up some garbage or eating less meat. But that wasn't the big effect. The big effect was that they would, once they actually did the change that they liked, they would start finding bigger things themselves. And so that's why, you know, the format of the podcast is the way that it is, is that it right, seemed right. to work on a small scale and maybe it'll scale up to millions or billions of people. Yeah, that would be a fine thing. So I know part of what you do is you ask the guests challenges to take on. I'm curious, I don't know, I'm kind of changing the topic here by, by interviewing you, but uh -huh. you know, you've thought about this more than I have. And I'm just enough reading to know that there are, you know, that Pareto principle about 20% of what you do makes 80% of the difference. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering when you think about the challenges that your guests take on, or maybe the challenges that you personally taken on, which ones do you kind of hold up as going, this is probably having the biggest impact because when you don't do this, that not only do you, does this happen, but this also happens and this also happens. I'm wondering if you've got a sense of which challenges have the most kind of systemic impact. What I found is that it's not the challenge, but it's the relation of, between the person's challenge and their values. Because I'll tell you one of the things that I do, and we'll do this in a second, uh, is that I ask the person to pick their own challenge based on their values. And because if I don't know their values, then if I say, here's something you could do that will low, lower your carbon emissions, but they really care about pollution right. or litter, then it's not going to resonate with them. Whereas if it's something that they do themselves, when it works, then when I, when I have the second conversation with them, it's all about how they improve their life. Now that could be right. through not eating meat or not getting bags at the store or take public transportation or something like that. But it's in their minds, it's, self-improvement or whatever their thing was. Maybe it's a relationship with their father that got them to think about streams when they were a kid. Right. So if sometimes I have a conversation with someone and they don't, I don't really pick up on, I don't do an effective job of getting why the environment means something to them. And if that's the case, then they're not going to have as strong an attachment to the, or the, the task, the challenge is not going to be as meaningful for them. Every now and then I'll have someone who just can't think of a project and if they ask me enough times, what, you know, can you think of one? Then I'll, I'll give them one, but often those don't work as well. So I like where you're going with that whole piece around what are your values and how do you go from something you actually care about to, to turn it into a, an action or a new habit or a new way of trying to show up in the world. Um, how do you connect people to their values? I mean, how do you help me figure out what I care about in the first place so that I could then go, well, then Nate, when you put it like that, not eating meat is the right thing to do. Well, actually, you know, part of my research when I prepare for things is to find out something about the person, see if there's something in their public persona that reveals something about that. So in your case, I, like often I generally ask the person, I say something like, you knew, you know, this is leadership in the environment and we've been talking about leadership for a while. Let's talk about the environment and I'll ask them, you know, what's a passion about the environment for you? Like, what do you care about? And I, I mean, I can ask you like, I mean, you saw the, the overview of the podcast. I did, yeah. And so you know that there's a challenge coming up, which is, you know, at your option. You don't have to do it. So you didn't have to, but you're on. So 
<laughs> I imagine there's something in the environment for you. What do you think about when you think about the environment? What do you care about with respect to the environment? You know, that's, I mean, I've been mulling that over and, um, you know, there are things we do, my wife and I, in part because of just sort of the choices we've made that, you know, we can kind of put up on the little trophy list of good environmental actions. So like we, you know, we live downtown Toronto and we don't have children. So we've never had to have a car. Um, we don't eat a whole lot of meat, although we do occasionally eat meat, but mostly we don't. You know, we do the recycling and all that sort of good stuff. I do fly a lot. So that, that's against it. And we support, you know, we donate to things like the Nature Conservancy group to they buy up land to preserve them. But, you know, what was interesting was when you kind of posed that question, even in absentia, I was like, what's, I wonder what the drivers for me are around trying to do that. And I think part of it is just that a sense of commitment to the commons. You know, they talk about the tragedy of the commons, you know, the commons being the shared land and you know, a community would have an agreement about, okay, so it's a shared land, so everybody can graze two sheep per day on the land. But then somebody goes, well, I'm going to just graze four because I, I want to. And then somebody else goes, well, if they're grazing four, I'm going to graze four. And then everybody else goes, well, damn it, I may as well get my whole flock on there. And then everybody's like, well, I'm going to put my flock on there as well. And before you know it, the commons, all the grass is gone. It turns into desert and now it becomes a resource nobody can use. So I think, you know, it feels to me that, Maybe the thing that's at the root of some of the stuff that we do is around trying not to be part of the tragedy of the commons where you go, well, I don't know. Who cares about the larger group? I'm just going to get what I want because I want it. And I think that's what I'm trying to self-manage around. Okay. So I'll kind of narrate what I'm doing as I'm doing it. You mostly, except at the very end, you mostly talked about what you did as opposed to the reasons behind it. And at the end, you started, like you say, you know, you talked about your eating habits, your flying habits, your um, where you donate and things like that. But that doesn't say why you do it. it. just says that you do it. And you said you don't want to be part of the tragedy of the commons. But still, there's, okay, what's, so what? what? I mean, what if you were? Or what's better for you about not being a part of that game? Yeah, you know, and partly starting around with the what do I do at the moment is going, well, Let's assume that what I do at the moment point to some values of mine. And part of the reason we're doing this is trying to figure out with you kind of on the air as we speak. Well, what does drive me to do those things? Because I'm not entirely sure. I don't have a clear articulation or uh, a clear understanding about why it is that I would care about the tragedy of the commons. I don't know if it's just that that's it in and of itself or just something about my upbringing. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm don't mean to be a kind of elusive, annoying interviewee here, Joshua, but I'm struggling a little bit to figure out what's the core driver or the core value for me around some of that. On the contrary, this is, there are several conversations that have gone like this and I think it's immensely valuable for, there are going to be some people listening who also feel the same way. They're like, yeah, I do want to do this, but I don't see what, what the difference is. Like maybe my life would be better if I bought a Hummer and just drove around and did whatever I want. But I do kind of feel like there's something there. And sometimes it takes another person asking the questions to see what you don't see yourself. And but if you don't make that connection, then anyone suggesting that you change your behavior without a motivation behind it. Right. Where it, there's no meaning or purpose to it. Right. So I don't know. What do you think about when you think about I mean, what's the difference between a world in which everyone's out for themselves versus a world in which people think of others? Is it an economic issue? Is it a, an empathy issue? You know, I think it's, uh, it's about that kind of 
thin veneer of civilization and how quickly that can get stripped away. What did I read? This is a kind of gruesome metaphor around how you, de- if your island is infected by rats, what you do is you don't set out to poison them. This is a really gruesome metaphor. So, you know, <laughs> not suitable for work if you're listening to it. It's like you, you collect all the rats and you throw them all into the same barrel together. And then effectively what happens is the rats start eating each other. And finally you're left with kind of two rats facing off against each other. And any other rats that show up either get eaten or, I mean, it just turns into a self-management piece where you're like, okay, it's kind of this mutually assured destruction thing going on. And it just doesn't take much for that to come out. I mean, you look at Trump and what's his name in North Korea at the moment, kind of posturing over nuclear missiles and how quickly that just escalates. And everybody else is like sitting here vaguely terrified about what's going to happen with that. And it feels to me that honoring the commons is one of the ways to go. This is how we stay in relationship with each other. Is it a fear of that or is it you don't want to go there or you do want to go to someplace else? Is it anxiety or is it or maybe it's passion for the alternative yeah i think it's um you know there's there's two ways of reacting to a core value you either move towards it or you move away from its opposite i think it's probably moving away from you know it's my attempt to to do what i can to move us away from stripping away that and i love the phrase that thin Mm -hmm. veneer of civilization that's the that's the that's, I'm kind of seeking to avoid that rather than necessarily being about all about the commitment to relationship. As I think about it, those kind of apocalyptic movies around, okay, it's Mad Max, it's whatever, it's all gone to hell. I find those quite depressing and scary. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Okay, so at this point in the conversation, a lot of people will talk about, like one person might talk about how much he likes to take on challenges. So that I ask him to take on a challenge with respect to the environment. The environment part is not as important. He just likes the challenges as it were. I kind of have faith in a situation like that, that, and this is borne out that when they do take on the challenges in the environment, they, they, it's not just that they learn about themselves and develop discipline or whatever, but they also pick up new things about their world, about the environment and they start caring more. Sometimes people will talk about, there's a lot of family connections, things with their parents going camping or outdoorsy things when they were younger and in that case, it's going to be a much more family-oriented thing. So we'll still be talking about emotions and what people care about, but the connections may be very different. And which is not to say that they might not not also have a system. I hear you, and I keep thinking like a systems perspective because I think of the tragedy of the commons as like a systems type thing. That's where I learned about the term from. Others might think it, see it as economic uh, or other, but that's the one that comes out in the whatever comes out in the conversation. I work with that. If I had many conversations with them, other things might come out, and then. I ask them, so I'll do it with you and and tell me how it feels when I do it with you is if the issue for you is avoiding the thin veneer of civilization from disappearing or or protecting it, then I 
invite you at your option. You don't have to do it, but if you want to, to take on a challenge that would affect that, maybe protect it more strongly or keep it there or something that would Mm -hmm. help reinforce it. And now I have to say a couple of things to make sure that people don't misunderstand. So it doesn't have to solve everything overnight because a lot of people have this feeling like if it doesn't it's a relief. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people have this reaction of like, well, you know, if this other industry doesn't change, what I do doesn't matter. Okay. This is just a personal challenge. It's not trying to save the world right now. Then it has to be something that uh, you yourself do. So no telling other people, you can't say, here's my challenge. I'm going to get someone else to change, but not me. And well, it's, it's disappointing because that would have been much easier. That's what a lot of people are doing. And that's, in my view, that's a lot of what's getting gotten us into this mess. It's like, everyone's like, well, right. it's okay for me to do this. I mean, Al Gore did it. So that being the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly Gandhi. It's like people with the poster up on their wall of like Gandhi, be the change you want to be. And then they're like, well, here's what I'll do. I'll get someone else to change. I'm like, what does that mean to you if not? Anyway, then it can be temporary. It's, I mean, it's temporary. But I hope that when you do it, if you choose to do it, that it's something you think about doing long term. So you don't just, you know, you can do it for whatever limited time. But I hope you think about making it longer term and and I think those are the, the main things. And it can't be something that you're already doing. Right. So is there something that comes to mind of something that you could do that might be relevant to the tragedy of the commons or to this thin veneer? You know, I want to say, and I'm embarrassed to say, it, I got nothing at the moment. <laughs> That's a common thing at this stage. I'm looking forward to the kind of the second conversation because it's a new insight for me around what's the driving motivator behind this. I haven't really had time to process it to go, well, what would I do differently as a result of a commitment to that belief and that value? So let's work it out because we're here now. And also I've seen that usually when someone has something that they care about, there's something usually there. Oftentimes, I mean, speaking for myself, I usually am inhibited even without realizing it of sharing things that I care about because it makes me vulnerable. And so even if there's something there, usually it can take me a bit to get to it. Right. Then other things is sometimes just talking about it gets like makes it more clear. I'm also thinking of, of my hopefully large listenership that there are probably a bunch of people out there who are also thinking of themselves. Yeah, I don't know either. And so I think I really like when someone who is a leader and an influential person allows themselves to be seen as I don't know, because <laughs> it's really easy to look at you and be like, I know it's a leader and an influential person. Be perfect. <laughs> but that's all right. Well, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people look at you and they'll say like, yeah, Rhodes Scholar, of course, blah, blah, blah. It's easy. But it's not the case. Right. And I've had people who are like really great coaches and really great leaders. And they come on and they're like the second time through, they're like, you know, I was just going to get bags from the store and bring bags with me to the store. And I kept not doing it. And this is, I, you know, this is just something I can't do right now. And for someone who's already gone through it. It's kind of like putting on a seatbelt. I mean, when was the last time you did not put on a seatbelt? Uh, I can't really remember. I mean, yeah. I don't drive a whole lot, but let's say it's been a long time since that hasn't been just an automatic habit. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, like when I go to the store, it's like, bring a bag. I don't think twice about it. And yeah. so for someone to say, I don't have time for it, I'm like, time? There's no time involved in this. But of course, that's, you know, they have other priorities and things like that. And so their mind isn't there yet. And that's actually... The, one of the biggest outcomes that I find is that people get this mindset shift is what I've been calling it. Right. Someone else made that term. And once you make that mindset shift, it's done. Like you, like now you're thinking about like you are someone who picks up trash off the ground and puts it in a trash can. It's not something you think about. It's just like you see, it, you're like, Oh, that shouldn't be there. I'll just put it in the trash can. Someone 
didn't, I will. And it's not like a time, con- it's not a big time sink or anything like that. So to the thin veneer of civilization is kind of an interesting thing. I haven't certainly think about the tragedy of the commons. I haven't thought so much about what to do about it. Mm. I'm kind of playing with it in my head. I, I presume you are too. Yeah, I'm playing. So he's got to go with it. Um, you know, there's just quite a lot of information out there about the 100-mile diet and in sourcing your food grown closer to you rather than the bag of spinach that's been flown all the way over from Africa or California or wherever it might be. And it feels to me that part of the one way of framing it, it's a small thing that could make a difference, is actually just being more conscious about where the food that my wife and I buy Where's that grown and where's that sourced and kind of tap into that more local sense of growing rather than the I don't really care the price of what it really took to get this lemon to me from wherever it's coming from. Now, the downside is, of course, we're just about to slide into autumn and fall and winter here in Toronto. And it's like, all right, so that (laughs) that rules out some of my summer fruit and vegetables because I'll be eating more winter based stuff that's, that's grown locally. But I think that could be the challenge, which is too increase the amount of 100-mile food that we buy and, and consume. So now let me ask you, because you came up with that, and it's something that a lot of people are doing. I wish more people were doing it, and I suspect that over time more and more and more people will do it. How did it come to mind? Was it already there and, like, it got revealed or did, like... It kind of, I'm going to say, Joshua, probably it felt like it just popped. I don't know whether it's some sort of connection between literally thinking about commons and a field, and a field is, like where you grow stuff and growing stuff leads to the diet piece. It could just be the sort of subliminal connections happening through that. Yeah. See, I think a lot of people have this stuff floating around their heads and here, I'll give you two stories from my life. One is when I first learned of how much pollution flying caused, I was on a flight and I was watching a guy who wrote the book, uh, uh, what's called without the hot air. He was at Cambridge, uh, Ian McKay or something like that. Anyway, he was talking And he said that flying New York, L.A. and back is roughly a year's worth of driving. And I did not want to hear that because I wanted to travel. And I also wanted to maintain the sense of I'm leaving the world a better place. And I found it. And suddenly and living in New York City out on a car. And so I was like, crap, this is not helping my identity, my own self identity. And so I did what I think most people would do. And I suppressed the information. You know, I put it in the back of my mind farther, you know, way off the back burner. And figured, I don't know, I'll deal with that later. Right. And I think most people do that. We hear all these ideas. Like the world is filled with, here's 20 tips that you can do to reduce your footprint. Here's 10 tips that you can do, blah, blah, blah. And if people aren't doing them, it's not because the tips aren't out there. It's not because the people don't hear them or they're not available. Because if you search online, you can find thousands and thousands of tips. Yeah. If people aren't doing it, there's something stopping them. And if they're not getting the information, it's not because the information's not out there. They don't want it. Right. It's not a... Once heard somebody say it's not a knowing problem, it's a doing problem. Yeah. And also it's like an anti-knowing problem because I didn't want to know that information. Uh, yeah. I think I, I could have looked it up any time. It kind of got in at just a moment when I happened to be open to it. And so that led me to suppress it and much later act on it. And in fact, the next time I was flying and then I was like, ugh, I can't stop. Right. This conflict is eating me up inside. And I think there's a lot of people being eaten up inside by doing one thing saying they believe one thing and actually behaving a different way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a conflict lots of us face, not just in thinking about the environment, but just in general, which is like 
what do we say our values are, what do our behaviors actually reveal our behaviors to be, and what's the gap between that? Yeah, and not just asking and dealing with the answers Mm -hmm. and then acting on it. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head of all of this without doing is interesting conversation, I guess. But then once you, if you make your goal changing behavior, which is if you don't change behavior, the carbon dioxide levels, the pollution levels are not going to change. So if you set your goal of changing those things and all you do is talk, I think the reason not many people are taking on changing their own behavior and trying to influence others is that it's really hard. I think doing what I'm doing and trying to influence other people to actually take on responsibility and and change. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to work with people who don't agree. If you disagree, that's your business. I'm not trying to change anyone's beliefs. But if you believe that's not a fight you want to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that there's a lot of people who want to change your behavior and can't get see their way to it. Either they don't know what to do or they don't know how to do it or they're afraid of people pushing back on them or they tried and failed and don't want to try again. And I want to that's my audience now. Maybe I'll work up to other audiences later. Right. And even within that audience, I'm only trying to reach the people that like I live in a certain world in the United States, on the East Coast, well-educated, male, lots of different things about me. That's that's me. And I'm hoping to get along with a few like you are one person. I think that you're an influential person. You may act like you're not, but I think you've <laughs> I've seen the book reviews. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. And there's a lot of them and there's a lot of stars on there. And either you have like a lot of really good friends. Or I think I people you don't know are reading the book and getting a lot out of it. <laughs> Books, I should say. Right. And uh, and so I'm trying to work with people like you so that your listeners will hear. And, and if they found you useful before, I think they'll find you useful again. And I hope also there are a lot of people listening and thinking, hey, I, I like what Josh is doing, but it doesn't resonate at all with my community. I'm going to take it to my community. And so, you know, and as leaders often say, I want to train leaders. I want to create leaders, not just followers or leaders and followers, because some people don't want to lead. Right. And I think that's the dance we all have, which is like, you know, the, the whole leadership and followership thing. We get to play both those roles. So you, really all the time. So in all sorts of small ways, you can play that play, um, you know, be leader for a moment. And in sorts of all sorts of ongoing ways, we can all play, you know, better followers as well. Yeah, I have to say, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And you called attention to like, you're like, I'm interviewing you back. But <laughs> and I'm. I think there's a rule, a general practice when you're interviewing is like, you shouldn't talk too much. And maybe listeners like Josh, let Michael talk. <laughs> you failed that rule, Josh. I'm sorry. <laughs> In my mind, I was letting you interview me back. Right. I, you're, I think you have a lot of experience interviewing people. That's true. And so I was allowing myself to be led back. And I think that that's what happened. I like that style of leadership of it's not obvious who the leader is anymore because the, we understand a common goal and we're trying to get that out there. I, and I want people who are listening to become leaders and, and like hear of what at least one person's path was in, if they're listening to this, at least they're not completely bored. Right. There's some value in it. And so I'm trying to share some of that. How are you feeling about this interview? I tell you, I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, it's, I like the back and forth. So it's not just you firing questions at me and me doing my best to answer, but there's that kind of mutual exploration. If I was a listener, both you and I are, uh, I would say, in my judgment, fairly cerebral. You know, we talk at a somewhat abstract, high-level kind of way of thinking, systemically, theoretically. And I'm just wondering if it's been a bit too much of that for some of the folks. But I don't know. You know, that there's only one way to – I mean, this will, this will have a different feel than some of your other interviews, perhaps. So you get to kind of throw it out there into the world and see see what people think. 
Yeah, I guess hopefully people will respond and write what they liked or didn't like. Right. I think also the second one will probably be more emotional and probably more stories. Right. As And I hope that it's wetting people's appetites to like, okay, Michael's talking this way. Let's see how it goes. And let's see. Actually, let's at some point I want to make the goal a smart goal. Okay. So would you be up for, as you said, like be more aware or be more um, having foods local? Would you care to make it more specific? You know, I'm going to say no to that right now just because I don't really know what my baseline is. So I don't know what I'm building from to improve towards. But I will – here's what I will commit. My smart goal will be to articulate the change I want to see in terms of eating more 100-mile food. So I'll push a little bit back because I want to – if possible, can we put something in that will, will reduce your effect in some way? Well, what I promise you what will happen is I will increase the amount of 100-mile food that I'm eating. So I'm going to have an effect. I just don't want to commit to exactly what that is uh, in, in that specificity that a smart goal demands because I don't know what I'm moving towards yet. I don't know where I am at the moment, so I don't know what it means to what extent I can increase the 100-mile food in my life. So change is going to happen. I just can't give it to you as a smart goal right now. Okay, it satisfies my interest in that it's not it's above zero. It is. Yeah. So that's whether it's quantified other than non-zero is I'm interested to hear because I think you'll come up with that anyway. Right. But as long as it's something because action as opposed to analysis. Exactly. Yeah. Pontification. Exactly. And how long do you think it'll take you to work it out? Well, I'm about to go on a three week traveling jag. (laughs) So. My goal of eating 100-mile food within 100 miles of Toronto is going to be thwarted by the <laughs> fact that I'm not in Toronto for the next three weeks. So I think what that means is it's a by the end of October, I'll have figured something out on this. Okay. Would you be game for scheduling next conversation for the end of October or beginning of November? Or does it have to go through your – This is going to have to go through my assistant because I've been forbidden from randomly putting <laughs> stuff in my calendar because it just makes life miserable for everybody. So – you could say end of October or early November, and we'll see what we, what Marlene can, what magic she can rustle up on the calendar. Okay, so I'll follow up with her after we hang up. That makes me sound very kind of fresh, but that's you know I've got to follow the rules in, in the company, or I get my hands. <laughs> Marlene's scarier than you might realize. Okay, that's cool. So I'll contact her and see about that, and, and schedule something for that. Perfect. And in any case, for the people listening. They probably, most of them are just going to get to go from, they'll hear the end of one and they get to start the next one right away, not even knowing how much time went in between. Right. And in fact, what we really should do is think about doing it in kind of end of November or December, because if I'm traveling for the next three weeks, the end of October is not going to be long enough for me to actually have made a whole lot of traction on this. So let's give me a chance to actually make a difference. Okay. So end of November. Yeah. I think that's going to be the good target area. Okay. And I like that you're already taking it on yourself to act like i think that you are envisioning coming back and reporting not just like oh i found out how much i ate and what the average distance was but to act on it before then before we speak right which is one of the big things that happens is that people once you start it's that mindset shift is i think already starting to happen right so i'll mention a couple things that I'll give you one challenge a challenging thought and then i'll also mention some things that come up with people so one is that mm-hmm. you can still do the 100 mile thing of 100 miles from where you are and Maybe wherever you are, you could tell the people. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So you may or may not want to incorporate that in because the next thing I was going to say is that the big challenges that I see people face is not so much their own willingness, but it's two big things. Other people 
who push back. Sometimes it's like a crabs in the bucket sort of thing. Sometimes it's like they just want logical explanations for things and they, it, it makes it difficult. Okay. And the other is travel. When you're away from home, you have less control over your environment. And so people face the, like, you know, if, if you're trying to avoid packaged food and you're traveling, it's really, you know, you don't have a fridge and a place to cook. So you're kind of stuck. So that makes your, if you're traveling around, it makes it doubly harder because you're going to be dealing with all these people who are trying to help you. And you're like, it sucks if they're like, oh, we, we're taking this great restaurant and it's all imported food. And you're like, oh, I'm trying to do the opposite. You have a double whammy of right. being away from home and that and other people. On the flip side, if you're just figuring things out, you, you could be like a big test bed. It's like, huh, what happens if I do this? Yeah. So I leave it to you if you want to make that part of it or not. All right. I will experiment while I'm traveling as well. All right, cool. So let's wrap up there. And, and else there's, if there's anything else that I didn't think to bring up that's worth bringing up. I think we covered a bunch and I've got my, I've got my marching orders. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to hearing how it goes because every now and then someone says something that's really new and, and yours is a different perspective. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Me too. Well, thanks. And then uh, have fun traveling the next couple of weeks and experimenting with the observations. Thank you. I'm sure I will. And I'll talk to you again in about a month and a half. A couple of months. Perfect. All right, cool. Talk to you then. All right. See you, Josh. See you. Bye. I'm interested to hear how Michael does this because he did something that a lot of people do when I talk to them about the environment, which is at first, he's not really sure what to do. He's done some things already, but he's not really sure what to do next. But when I talk to him, it pops out that there was something, this hundred mile diet, hundred mile food term. I didn't come up with that. That was something he's already thought about. I think a lot of people, when they hear this podcast, it gives them a chance to try something that they've been thinking about for a while. So I hope if you're listening to this and you've thought about maybe there's something I could do and you're not really sure what, go through some of the questions he and I did for yourself and see if something doesn't pop out. Also, since this recording, Michael and I got to meet in person. This is kind of a cool insider thing. He was in town with Marshall Goldsmith, who held a party, and we were both there, so we met in person. So I look forward to the next time. I think it'll be an even closer connection between Michael and me. So I look forward to it and hearing how his challenge went. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.